Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. So I want you to think back to maybe when you first fell in love, maybe when you first started dating or when you were first married, when you had all of these joyous hopes and intentions for your relationship together, right? You maybe had the best of dreams about each other, about what your future and your relationship entailed, about who your spouse would be and would become and who you would be and would become. You had a picture, right, of how in love you would be, that you would be in love with them and that they would be in love with you. Science has done research kind of on this idea of falling in love. It's called the infatuation or, or the honeymoon stage, and it can last typically anywhere from 18 to 36 months, which is just enough time to fall in love, get married, and then wake up and not know the person that you wake up next to right before reality sets in and it seems overnight almost imperceptibly that the person that you fell in love with mystically transforms into the most annoying person on the face of the planet, right? Have you all been there? Are you with me? Some of you aren't. You're still in the infatuation stage, and that's great, right? You win extra points for Valentine's Day, right? But forget the future of your hopes and dreams. You're just trying to find the next way out, the next breath of fresh air, right? Sometimes the expectations for our life is way easier to construct in our minds. It's way easier to hope for than to actually achieve, than to actually put into place, than to actually live out and live out well. Because loving well takes intentionality. It takes determination. It takes a will to want something different than status quo or than what's demonstrated before us. It means you've got to be ready for things like Valentine's Day. Hint, that's this week. Perhaps you hear your child crying and need to go check on them. Just be back by the time the sermon is done. Um, Loving each other well was always the goal, though. No one gets married because they aren't in love, and no one is thinking this will work until something better comes along. We put it out there explicitly that this is until death do us part. But that's easier said than done, and sometimes being in a relationship where you're not loving each other well can feel like death is preferable. But loving well is the goal of any relationship, especially in marriage. So today we're launching into this new series. We're walking through a book and a resource called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and we're going a little bit out of order, mostly because of Valentine's Day. But today I want to talk about this idea of our emotional healthy space of loving others well. What does that look like? How do we expand that and play that out? This book is about... um, is about the nature that it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And I love that tagline. So we're going to be diving into it here a little bit more, and I've given you a couple options. You can buy the book and follow along. Uh, I just learned this morning that the chapters in the newest, most updated book don't match my chapters. Uh, So I'm going to try to give you a heads up, but I'm probably going to be wrong. So uh, keep on your toes with that if you decide to buy the book, or you can jump into uh, one of our three sermon-based 
faith-based life groups. We still have slots in our Monday and Tuesday groups if you want to have deeper level conversations uh, about this. But bare minimum, you'll want to make sure that you're here because we're going to look at seven critical steps or shifts or lenses, things that we can look through to understand how our emotional health plays in with our spirituality. We're going to be looking at being our authentic self, letting go of control, learning our limits, how to break the power of the past, and a few more. But today, again, with respect to Valentine's Day, we'll be talking about loving well, because not only is loving well the goal of our earthly relationships, but it's also the goal of being a Christ follower. Loving well is the goal of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And just like in our earthly relationships, the ideas that we have, the dreams that we have, the hopes of what that looks like are far different than the will and work that it takes to actually live that out and carry it through in our lives. So to get a picture of loving well, let's turn our attention to Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith, the great demonstrator of love for us. If we're making the case that loving others well is the goal of the Christian life, then what do we see in Jesus's life that underlines or highlights or exemplifies this truth and this reality? What does Jesus show us that loving well looks like? The problem with a really big question like that is where in the world do you start? Because as you peel back any layer of the Jesus story, we could dive into any story in particular and see this kind of exude from who Jesus was and is from the work that he does. His entire life was lived out as a demonstration of the reality of what it looks like to love others well. His very existence as a human being demonstrates that his love was played out in entering into our story. If we could put it in a word, I would simply say this for us today, that love is spelled incarnation. When we look at the life of Jesus, when we see the works that he does, love, according to the example that Jesus gives us, loving others well for Jesus meant the incarnation, becoming flesh, becoming human. So let's turn to John chapter 1. Let's start off our conversation here, and we'll kind of meander through Scripture as we look at the life of Christ. John chapter 1, if you uh, brought a Bible, you can turn there. If not, we have Bibles for you. You're welcome to slip your hand up. Uh, We'll be on page 499. If you're following along in the Worship Center Bibles, Uh, as always, if you don't own a Bible, please just keep this. It's our gift to you. Uh, But John chapter 1 starts this way. John John chapter 1 verse 14 says the word, talking about Jesus, right? The previous verses to this identify this Jesus as the word. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. The Word, this divine presence, this Spirit who is from the beginning, who all things were created through, becomes flesh. He enters into the human story. He dwelled, he lives among us. I love the way that the message paraphrases this verse. It says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Right? There's this idea of proximity, that's something that is really hard to define and understand, like this living incarnate word through which all of creation was made through actually comes down to be finite. 
The infinite becomes finite. Something that's grand and esoteric that we can't quite put words to becomes something very, very tangible. Something that you can see, that you can touch, that you can reach out and experience. Incarnation means in flesh, quite literally. It's specifically applied to this spiritual idea that something without form gains a human form. So when we look to Jesus to answer this question, what does loving other people different from ourselves look like? Jesus' answer to the question is found in his act of incarnation, of stepping into our story, of getting up from where he was and entering into where we are. Notice the difference because this isn't just knowledge-based. Jesus knew the story of humanity. He knows each of our stories better than we could ever attempt to understand. Jump back up with me to verse 10 uh, in John chapter 1 there. It says, He was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, right? It wasn't enough to know our story. He could have issued decrees. He could have issued rulings from on high. He could have given us another 10 commandments to correct our path and our story, but he doesn't. He enters in. He puts on flesh. He becomes like us in every single way. Are you all with me this morning? One of my favorite, not my favorite story, it's actually my son's favorite story. I find it very annoying because uh, I've been reading it every single night with him like since Christmas. It's the same book he always wants to read it, and it's a story uh, about a bunch of birds who are caught in a winter storm. I know I have your attention now, right? They're birds and they're stuck. They're trying to fly into the glass to get, uh, to get inside to where it's warm because the winter storm is raging and there's a man inside who decides that he wants to save these birds and so he goes outside and he he opens his shed, he turns on the light, and he attempts to shoo the birds inside, and then they all fly away, and he gets flustered, so he puts out breadcrumbs, and he makes a nice home for them, and he tries to usher them in, he tries to demonstrate for them, hey, walk this way, this is where you can find safety in life and not freeze to death, and of course, the birds don't understand, they're terrified of him, and they fly away, and in a moment of clarity, the storm ceases, and he all of a sudden has this divine moment where he recognizes that this is the story of Jesus that he entered into. He became what we needed in order to show us the way. In the author's words, he became a bird in order to direct the birds towards safety. The moment of clarity comes, obviously, when this author recognizes that Jesus enters into our story. He was completely not, but he enters in to show us the way to life and truth and happiness. And my son loves to read this book. We read it together every night, and the connection has just been broadened in my mind that Jesus comes to show us the way towards life and truth and grace. He enters into our story. The clearest picture that I at least have of this entering in is in Matthew. Matthew chapter 11 in the message. It says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly." 
I love that invitation. It's a reminder that I need that the cost of following Jesus while we wrap it up in discipleship and hard conversations and avoiding sin and all of those things are good. Fundamentally, what Jesus invites us into is life and grace and truth and wholeness, an unforced rhythm of grace. He invites us to watch what he does and then to do what he does alongside them. And so Jesus enters into the story. He lays aside heaven the scripture says that he sets aside his divinity and he enters into our world. He enters into the muck and the mire and he enters into poopy diapers and stinky religion. He enters into murder and treachery. He enters into debauchery and gluttony. And someone who was at that time and even still today who is considered too holy to be around sin is found dining with tax collectors and prostitutes, the very lowest of the low that existed in that societal paradigm. Jesus enters into the story, right? What does loving well look like for Jesus? It's incarnation. It's setting aside his own perspective and prerogative for our sake, entering into our story, not just knowledge about someone else's experience, but the understanding and the experience to walk alongside them. This is the demonstration of Jesus's love, and it's ratified in the cross. Romans 5.8 says it this way, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? His incarnation is more than just a proclamation. It's more than a judgment. It's more than an edict from on high. He entered in, he understood, he empathized with, and he even suffered with. He takes our suffering on his own. Right? The word in Scripture is compassion, with passion, with suffering. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant of God who is a prophecy of Jesus. Here's just an excerpt from that in Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he, Jesus, took our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Right? The incarnation is Jesus stepping into our world. How do I teach these people about a God who loves them? I can't just stand on high and try to shoo them into the barn. I have to enter in. I actually have to become them. I have to not only know their story, I have to understand their story. I have to experience it to the point where their pain becomes my pain. Because this is what loving well looks like according to Jesus' actions. Loving well is becoming the flesh, becoming incarnate of the person that you're trying to reach. So, what does that mean for us? How do we translate this, right? We're talking about our own emotional health, our own emotional spirituality. And while it's profound to say, well, let's look at Jesus, right? Who'd have thought to do that, Pastor? You're so wise. We all know these things, right? We all know that Jesus is the example, so how do we take that from, our, from his story and make it our own? What are the pieces that we translate into our own lives and into our own steps that we might love others well? In a single question, what does it look like for us to incarnate? To be incarnational as Christ was incarnational with us, what does it look like for us to live out this value and to love others well? I think it's summed up in Jesus' own statements echoed throughout multiple places in Scripture, go and do likewise. 
If Jesus set aside himself in order to follow into the work of humanity, again, he already understood it, but he wanted to experience it fully, to have compassion with us, to walk alongside us in every area. What does it mean for us to put flesh on and walk with people around us in different settings, in different places, and at different times? I can think of no more prominent message to where the church needs to connect our emotions with our spirituality than this point of being incarnational, right? Our world and our country is so divided virtually on any single issue that you want to pick out, whether it's race or sexuality or politics. We talked about abortion last week. The result is that we stand on our side of the fence, though, and we just lob arguments across the social media hemisphere at anybody and everybody who on the opposite side. And I promise I'm not picking on anybody's social media status. I had a number of you after last week go, if you didn't like my status, you should have just said so. This is not personal. It's not, I promise you. It's about the collective good that we bring into the world. And social media enables us to stand on one side of the fence and to have no concern for who's ever on the other side of the fence and just lob our ideology across the way. This is not what we see in Jesus. This is not what he demonstrates. What Jesus demonstrates is that he tears down the fence, that he walks through it, and he goes and he hangs out with the people that he disagrees with most. The people that are fundamentally opposite to who he is, the people that society says he shouldn't be around, those are the people that he steps into. So what does it look like for us, for you to cross to the other side of the fence? What does it look like for you to, instead of firing arrows at somebody with a different understanding, to seek to understand their experience, to own up to the reality that you have no clue what their life is like? that you have no clue what it's like to live in an African-American society and to know that when you get pulled over by a police officer to be fearful in that moment. I don't have that experience. I can own up to that and to say, I have to give preference to you because I don't understand that world. What does it look like when somebody who has a different worldview about sexuality and instead of lobbing judgment upon them, what does it do for us to sit down and to say, I have no clue what it's like to live in your world. I didn't grow up that way. Tell me about your experience so that I can understand you better. What does it look like instead of disagreeing with somebody on one political issue or another, we instead go, help me understand what it is about you that's so passionate about this particular area because I want to know you and I want to understand your experience because I'm not convinced that I have everything right. As a matter of fact, I'm more convinced that I have to do what Jesus did, which is enter into your story to understand your experience, even to the point where your pain becomes my pain. What would it look like if we started doing this? Uncomfortable yet? Let's go a little bit further. I warned you. You can't love people on the other side of a fence. It's impossible. You just can't do it. You can't stand back from afar and to claim that you love people around you. Read the book of 1 John. It talks about how what we demonstrate as a faith of Christianity, the very hallmark of the way in which we interact with the world, ought to be characterized by love. 
people do not have that opinion of church. They do not have that opinion of Jesus. We know this. We've seen the surveys. So what are we going to do to be about changing that perspective? In Jesus's world, if we're to take his example, then we ought to incarnate. We ought to put flesh on to step across the barriers and to enter into their story until their pain becomes our pain. This is why I'm so excited uh, that I get to go to Africa this summer. It's been uh, a dream of mine. I've been a supporter of uh, As One, and we support them as a church. And I've always had really good excuses with family and money as to why I can't go. But part of what's beautiful about this trip is that it's an incarnational trip. It's just an opportunity to experience and to be with people, to bring encouragement and to hear from their stories, not to come in as the person with all the ideas and all of the suggestions, but to learn from them about what life is like. I I wonder if instead of having to go to Africa to experience that, what if we did it in our day-to-day processes? What if we did it at the coffee shop? What if we did it at the grocery store? What if you did it with that department or that coworker at work who you just can't see eye to eye with? And what if you said, how do I love that person well? Because in order to love that person well, I I have to be incarnational. I have to step into their world, which means instead of just thinking that I know what they're going through, I I need to seek to understand what they're going through and not just understand what they're going through, but be able to empathize, to have their pain become my pain. And then when you get to that point where you can feel what they feel and experience on some level what they experience, you might just get the opportunity to love them. You might just be able to speak truth to them. You might just be able to show them the way into the barn where it's warm and safe and where Jesus is and where there's light and love and truth. But the problem is that we start the conversation by evangelizing with the gospel and then we wonder why people don't want to talk to Christians anymore. It's because we haven't taken the hard step of actually learning to love people and then from the depth of our relationship with them, introducing them to Jesus who has more for them than we could ever understand. Let's get a little bit more intimate. Does that sound good? Nobody's leaving yet, so that's all right. How do you incarnate with the people closest to you? How do you be incarnational in those relationships that are right next door? Right? Often when it comes to our relatives, when it comes to our kids, when it comes to our spouse, we skip this step because we already know them. We know how to love them. We know what they need. As a matter of fact, we know better than what they need, what they need to do, right? If they would just get their act together, then we could move on past this. If they would just fix it, if they would just get better at that one thing, if they would just do what I told them, we wouldn't have this issue, right? Are you with me? Kids especially? Just me this morning? Fair enough. Often the people that we're closest to are the ones that we least seek to understand, Can you imagine if that were Jesus' approach? If in this adoption to sonship, he comes down and he gives us instructions and he goes back to the Father and says, I don't know, I tried, they just won't listen. That would be a very, very poor gospel opportunity. What does Jesus do instead? He gets closest with the people that he seeks to understand the most. He steps in, he gets to know them, and he gets dirty with them. Of course, the, the other obvious problem is that whenever they have a problem, we, we immediately remove ourselves from the solution because it's their problem, right? It's them that have the issue. It's them on the other side of the fence. It's them on the other side of the relationship. But let's just get real here this morning. Anytime they have a problem, you have a problem. 
That's the reality, right? They're not here. Them is an esoteric group that changes every single moment. You're the one in church today. You're the one listening. You're the one seeking to model your life after Christ. So what do you need to do in order to be incarnational in those relationships, whether it's on the edges and fringes of your social network or whether it's the most intimate relationships that you have? How are you seeking to understand, to know them, and to love them from that depth of understanding? What would it look like to be incarnational in those relationships? Let's start with just relatives, right? I'll never forget a moment of clarity. It was after we had probably our second son and where I was just kind of coming to terms with what it meant to be a parent, like setting my entire life on hold for these tiny crying things. Are you with me? And just going like, I had no idea that it was this much to give myself, to to set aside every piece of my life, to care about something to the depth where nothing that I valued before matters anymore because of this child, because of this person, because of this gift that God has given me. And I remember in a moment of stark clarity, just as kids grow up, um, you know, when they're babies, they just kind of cry and you feed them and stuff, but then they like, they get attitudes and stuff. Not your kids, I'm sure. This must just be my kids, right? Um, but they get, um, they, get some, they get snarky sometimes. They get ungrateful. Uh, they get uh, to the point of the conversation where you go, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it, right? Like, these are the conversations that evolve. And in the midst of that conversation, I went back to my entire growing up years. And uh, believe it or not, I can be a little ornery. Uh, I can be a little bit unloving, and uh, I had to call my parents and just say, I need to apologize. Because now that I have children, I understand it at a degree that I never did. I'm able to enter into the conversation in a way that I was never previously able to. And I was ungrateful, I was a punk, I didn't listen to you, and I just need to say, I'm sorry. I just need to own up to the fact that I didn't understand the pain that I was causing. And now now I'm able to enter in a little bit more into that level of understanding what it's like to be a parent and to give up everything for your child. What does it look like to be incarnational, to step into those relationships, to see life experiences that you don't have and that you might never have and be able to own the person on the other side of that conversation's feelings as valid and as proper and to give them deference to your own? What does it look like to be incarnational with those relationships closest, right? Where we step into the experience of others, then we begin to understand them a little more fully. Let's talk about kids again. Nothing more satisfying, right, than working all day, making a long commute home, only to have a child with a bad attitude. Right? Nothing just makes my heart sore. Do your chores, pick up the laundry, do the trash, do your homework, go to bed. Let's move it along, right? Kids, believe it or not, have hard days. Think about it this way. Imagine all of the things that you know as a 20 to 40-year-old adult or whatever, you can fill in the blank there, I won't presume your age, right? But imagine all of the life experience that you have to be able to filter through the emotions and, and status of your day. And now jump into yourself when you were a kid and you didn't have any of those things to process through, right? How do you process through the first time somebody betrays you? How do you process through those first feelings of of gratitude and of gratefulness for a best friend or when a friend moves away? How do you have the ability to process through that? And if you're like me, when I look at my kids, I tend to go, well, I had to learn it. Time to grow up. You better learn it right now. Let's go. Chop, chop. 
Let's go. Pick it up. We got stuff to do. I'm sure you had a bad day. I had a bad day too. Let's go. Time to learn a tough lesson. What does being incarnational with your children look like? What is stepping outside of your own world, your own perspective, and stepping into their world where their world is in upheaval because of something that somebody said at school? It's so easy for me to dismiss that and to go, that doesn't matter. It's little. It's small. Let's move on. We've got bigger fish to fry. But for them, that's their entire world. It's everything that they're learning in that moment. And what they don't need from me, I'll only speak about my experience, what they don't need from me is a leveling down from up top about what they should or shouldn't be doing, is a distant removed commandment about doing the things that ought to be done and are proper to be done. What they need is somebody to be incarnational, to walk alongside them, to understand their experience. What was going on today, buddy? Why did that affect you so much? How do you think we know and understand that? Who do you think Jesus is in the midst of that whole story? How do we be incarnational with these tiny little hearts that Jesus has trusted unto our care? Don't just stop at being a parent. Start by being a spiritual mentor. Enter into their story. Enter into their lives. Hear their experience for what it is and then provide them a safe space to grow and to walk through it. Don't minimize their pain. One last big one. How about your spouse? Valentine's Day coming up. Some of you are back from your shopping already. I'm glad to see that. What does it look like to be incarnational with your spouse, to set aside your own agenda for the sake of stepping into their world instead of presuming that your world is the bigger world, the one with more stress, the one with more things going on? What does it mean to set aside your own agenda, to step into their world and to listen about their unique pains and pressures of their day? It might look a little something like this video clip. Let's take a look. There's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head it is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine, I will listen, fine. It's just, sometimes it's like, there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on, Ow. if you would just- Don't! Try to see things my way. Now that's hilarious for about a thousand different reasons, right? Mostly because it's too real, right? It's not about a physical nail, but it's way too close that we've all been in conversations where we think that we are God's gift to our spouse, right? That we see something clearly and it's our responsibility to, to fix them. 
So let's just start on a level playing field. We all have a nail. All of us, every single one of us. You can turn to the person next to him. You can say, you've got a nail, baby. And you can turn to the person on the other side of you and say, you know what, I've, I've got a nail too, right? Because this is the reality. We all have areas of ourselves that we're working on improving, that we're working to get better. Here's the second reality. Most of us know that. Most of us understand that we have things that we're working on. Most of us know instinctively what those areas are. Translation, we don't need your help always. That's not always true. There may be some things that you are gifted for God to be able to speak into their lives, but the bottom line is that we don't typically need that opportunity. We don't need somebody to fix us. What we would rather have is instead to be known, right? Because you see that in the video that when the, when the male turns away his attention from fixing the things that he knows to be the problem, what she feels is she feels heard and understood. In a word, she feels known. She feels understood, and and he sets aside his agenda for preference of her pain and her experience. It's not about fixing the situation. It's about being a part and being next to the person who's walking through it. Compassion, suffering with, entering into their experience to where their pain becomes your pain. I heard this, or this quote was in the book, and it stuck with me all week. I've been chewing on it and chewing on it. Being heard, I would substitute understanding just for our conversation, but it's kind of one and the same. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're indistinguishable. So translation, what your relationship doesn't need is a fix, What your spouse maybe is seeking is just to be known, just to be heard, just to be understood. How can you be incarnational in this relationship that is closest to you? And instead of using the knowledge that God has given you about your spouse and the ways that they're struggling, and instead of trying to fix the thing that they aren't asking for help fixing, how do you step into their shoes and go, yeah, that must be really hard that all your sweaters are snagged? How do you step into the actual situation and walk up into that. Walk this back up the ladder with me because not only is this true for our closest relationships, but it's true as we widen the circle. What does it look like for your kids? To instead of trying to fix their issues, instead of trying to accomplish the agenda that you just dwelt with them, that you just moved into their neighborhood, that you let them set the agenda and listened to them and provided them a space to process. What if you did the same with your relatives, with the parents and family close to you that you entered into their situation and said, wow, that must be really hard and set aside your agenda to fix and to coerce and to lead them in a certain way, but you just stepped into their world in order to love them? What if you stepped into the world of the people who are at work, of the people who are on the other side of the political or ideological fence? And what if you just stepped into their world and said, hey, teach me about what it means to be you? What's your experience? experience? How can I seek to understand? And rather than having an agenda of correcting or winning an argument or starting a fight, just seeking to understand because being understood, being heard is so closely related with being loved that to the average person, it is indistinguishable. So a simple exercise for us this week. Sorry, one point there before we move on. The gift is not only understanding the other person, The gift is not only understanding, the gift is them believing that you understand them. 
So many people can say, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I understand that. But when you minister love from the place of actually understanding, and I believe that about you, all of a sudden my heart is wide open to you because I believe that you understand what I'm going through. And your actions are then filtered through this lens of love and understanding and care and compassion. And it means that you can lead people with love as opposed to throwing ideology across the fence. So here's your homework. Simple exercise this week. Listen with no agenda. Listen with no agenda besides seeking to understand the other person. No helpful answers, no window of opportunity, not getting ready for the next thing that you're going to say. Allow the person to complete their thought, your only focus being on the words that they're saying. Then after they're done, repeat it back to them, either word for word or using your own words to communicate the concept and then verify with them, am I hearing you correctly? Am I understanding what you're saying? Give them space and opportunity to respond and before the end of the conversation say, is there anything Else. It may sound simple, but a simple listening process can go a tremendous way in helping us love others well, which is the step of emotional and spiritual maturity that we're talking about. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I'm going to give you one other piece of homework. I want to encourage you to make a listening appointment. Put it on your calendar. I would highly encourage this not be your Valentine's date. Um, it tends to communicate things that have not been communicated and is a very fast way to ruin a date very quickly. Uh, I'll just say that from personal experience. The point being, make time to listen to people in your lives. Make time to listen to your spouse. Make time to listen to your kids. Make time to listen to that coworker at work. Make time to listen to the people on the opposite side of your Facebook accusation and to be able to listen. Put it on your calendar to try and listen, not for the sake of listening, but for the sake of loving. Because what Jesus demonstrates for us is that the key to loving well is to be incarnational with those people around us, to step out of our agenda and into theirs, to experience what they experience and to eventually feel what they feel. When we love people from that space, we bypass the, the, the barriers, we bypass the things that keep us separated, and it allows us to truly love them well. Listen, this is the difference between buying roses on Valentine's Day because you know you're supposed to buy roses, and instead going, I know that my spouse loves fresh-cut flowers because fresh-cut flowers remind her of her grandma's house where she always had freshly picked flowers. And so for that reason, instead of buying roses, I buy daisies because I know that that communicates my love for them because I understand them more intimately than simply what the cultural normatives say about what's coming up. How will you be intentional with your love in all of your relationships, in all of your spheres this week. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm grateful for your example of loving well, of being incarnational, and now, God, would you equip us to live that out. God, would you challenge us in areas to step into the worlds of others who are different from us, to understand and to seek to understand them for the unique and wonderful creation that you've made them to be. God, would you forgive us of our judgment and the times where we've come in with the agenda to fix and to correct and to coerce and to move things in. God, would you equip us to love well, to be incarnational, to be your presence and your spirit in their life. Heavenly Father, God, would you equip us to love people with no agenda, to listen with no response other than seeking to understand them. 
And God, in doing so, may we come more to know and be acquainted with your suffering, with your incarnation, with who you are to us. May we not do this on our own strength, but on the strength in which you give us in order to be able to enter into other stories just as you entered into ours. God, help us to love others well because it's essential to our spiritual development and our emotional maturity. All God's kids agreed together and said,